namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa buddhandamang sangang namasami It feels wonderful to be back here. It feels like it has been ages. So, it's nice to be here. To see you all fresh after the new year. It's lovely. I'm going to be here tonight, and then in two weeks I'm coming again. And what I wanted to talk about over these two evenings was uh, the topic of Adana, Sila, and Bhavana. These are Pali words that mean generosity, integrity, and practice. And one of the things that's interesting about you know the way we um, formulate <coughs> in our Western world is, is is that you know a lot of times people their first interest is meditation. So they like to come and learn to meditate. That's the first thing. And then after meditating for months, sometimes years, then you know, occasionally people are interested in the precepts. You know, because one recognizes that when one sits still and one has not been keeping the precepts very well, then it has quite a, an, a, a powerful effect on your mind and on everything. And then after a few more years or maybe decades, then people begin to switch on to the fact that actually it's not a bad thing to, to give and to be generous. And so in our Western world, we do things opposite from what is normally prescribed in the traditional context and what the Buddha recommended. So when the Buddha would speak to a group of people who were not his students, so they didn't have confidence in him as a teacher. They didn't know who he was. They didn't have a sense of, you know, the gifts that he had to offer and had faith in them. Then he almost always would start with generosity as the first topic. And, you know, I think there's a reason for that. And and part of the reason for that is, is, is that when we speak about generosity, it connects us to our own goodness and generosity is, is one of the qualities that helps us um, well there's many there's many attributes about generosity that are wonderful it, 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 it's, it weakens desire it weakens stinginess it is an antidote towards the, the grasping and the I and the me and the my making that comes out of grasping it is um, an antidote to um, the negativity in our mind, to, to judgmental mind, to critical mind. It's an antidote to depression. It's an antidote to feeling worthless. It's an antidote to not knowing uh, that we have a place in the world or that we belong to something bigger. So, you know, generosity has an awful lot of really powerful components to it that support having it be 
an important part of our practice. And one of the reasons why this is true is because generosity connects us with our own goodness. And anyone who's spent any time meditating, we would know that oftentimes there's things that come up when we're meditating that are not always so easy. And so having access to our own goodness gives us some leverage, some resources to navigate the challenges. And it's not only true for meditation. There's all kinds of things that come up in life that are not so easy. And having access to our own generosity gives us leverage for those as well. So as a, as a first point of entry, you know, the Buddha recommended or often spoke about the importance of generosity and the value of giving as a way of um, setting the stage to be able to understand and make sense out of and make good use out of the others. So when we think about giving, you know, one of the things that's really important to remember from a, a Buddhist perspective is, is, is that the role of intention, the motivation that is being driven, where we're coming from with things, is really um, very important. And so, you know, we can look. You know, there's ways of giving things. You can give things as kind of as a, as a poke, you know, to jab them. To, you know, you can give things as a way to insult people. Um, you can give things, you know, motivated out of fear. You can give things because you want to have a social standing or status as a result of it. You can give things because somebody gave you something and you're giving something back in return. It's, you know, one person gave me this and somebody gives me that. So, and you can see that the different kinds of motivations that we have behind our actions are going to have an effect on the result. So in uh, a Buddhist way of looking at things, it's not just simply the action themselves, it's the motivation behind it. You know, what's actually driving our behavior as to the kind of effect that it has. So when we're looking at intention then, you know, when we're giving from the heart, it's going to be a different thing than if we're giving, um, you know, out of fear or stinginess or wanting to um, um, insult somebody or if we're giving in order just because somebody else gave us something and we feel that it's our responsibility to give them something back. So then in looking at the, the, um, the intention, the quality of intention, we can see then that the, the purity of our mind or the purity of our heart, the motivation is then going to have an effect, an impact on the quality or the result. Now, in, in the traditional Buddhist teachings, there's a lot of conversation about the law of cause and effect, the effect of karma and of merit. And in our Western society, we don't talk about these so much. And part of the reason why, I don't know why it's not very popular, but it's not. Uh, it's not very popular to talk about karma, and it's not very popular to talk about merit. And I think because the idea of merit is some kind of a, I'm not sure what it is. I think there's a sense of it being disempowering somehow, that there's somebody somewhere collecting the merit books and keeping track and 
and that you know and and it, and it puts us back into a a traditional framework of uh, somebody else having authority over us that we are supplicating to by de- I'm not quite sure exactly what goes on but it's not very popular and yet when we understand the principle of merit we can understand that yes it is true that things do have a cause and effect and it is true that the motivation that we bring to our action is going to change the effect that it has and that when we understand that actually our practice is not um, is about accumulating wholesome things and that merit is actually a wholesome thing that we are capable of accumulating then rather than having it be somebody who we're supplicating outside of ourselves it's just an understanding it's like developing a, 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 a pool of positivity that we can draw on or have access to even if we don't have a bank account with a, a you know a, a register of entries of you know how much is in it and how much we took out you know and certainly you know when we're up against challenging situations our accumulation of positivity helps us weather it and that's true in our general life circumstances as well as in our meditation experience you know that can be true so the intention behind the giving is important and also the mind state of the recipient is also important so if you give something to somebody whose mind is um takes it and goes into desire with it or goes into envy with it or goes into um whatever it will be very different than in a mind that is is clear and clean of desire or ill will or envy or any of those qualities and is just staying open with clarity with kindness with generosity with gratitude and with understanding what the point of practice is all about and how we are able to use generosity in order to support that so and then there's also the gift itself you know the kind of gift that we can give but because the intention of the giver and the intention of the receiver ends up being an impact on the effect of the gift then it's for this reason that there was a lot of statements in the scriptures about the importance of supporting contemplatives people who are keeping the precepts people who are practicing people who have understood the truth because the 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 possibility that the 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 adding up of the the positive intention of giving and the positive intention of receiving is going to end up with a sum that is somehow uh significant in that kind of mathematical equation so i mean and the buddha even said that it was more meritorious to give to a whole sangha that was support that was living the life than it would be just to give to himself for this purpose the value of supporting people who are practicing then we have the kind of looking at well there's the intention behind the giving there's the intention behind the receiving and then there's the, in, the there is what is actually given and certainly we can give objects we can give financial support we can give gestures of kindness we can give our capacity to listen we can support um people with uh food or clothes or shelter and you know one of the gifts that's considered the highest gift is the gift of dharma 
because the Dhamma is a gift which then supports us to be able to live in a way where there's no suffering. So we can give the gift of harmlessness or we can give the gift of fearlessness when we are supporting a person that they don't feel frightened. And so, you know, I will talk, when we keep the precepts, one of the things that we're giving is the gift of harmlessness and fearlessness by living in a way where we're not inducing fear in other people. Yeah. So in terms of giving, you know, there's a couple of different images. You know, one kind of image is beggarly giving. And beggarly giving is is that you have something that you have no use for anymore, you don't want it, you want to get rid of it, and so you give it away, okay? And another kind of giving is called friendly giving, and this is the stuff that we have, that we use, that we like, that we need, and we also give that away. And then there's kingly giving or queenly giving, it's noble giving, and this is the stuff that we absolutely treasure, it's the stuff that is the most important to us. It's the stuff that we really don't ever want to part with, ever, under any circumstances. And we still give it away. And it's an interesting contemplation to work with each of these and to see the effect that it has on our heart and mind and to see, you know, the effect that it has on other people. And so, you know, these are... um, And then, and then one of the things that's really uh, incredibly wholesome is, is, is that when a person is making an offering of any kind, whether it's an offering of a, something or an offering of some service or some support, or even the act of kindness, is to contemplate one's intention before, to contemplate the act while one's doing it, and to reflect on it afterwards. And this is really wholesome to do that. And so, you know, one of the things which I love in an Asian context is is, is that, I know this is true particularly in Sri Lankan people, that they keep what they call a good karma book. And what they do is from the time that that they can, they write down acts of generosity that they have done. So if a family gives alms, to the monastery or they helps out a family in need or they support somebody who's in trouble or they make it possible for somebody else to go to school, they write it down in a book. And when they're feeling sick or when they're feeling depressed or when they're on their deathbed, then either they read it or a family member reads it. And it's incredibly skillful thing to reflect on the positive things that we do in our life. Now, we think about this and we think, yeah, right, you know, right. (laughs) And we think, you know, that's sort of like just patting myself on the back. You know, that's just sort of like, you know, making the ego bigger. But in a Buddhist sense of it, it's absolutely not like that at all. It's, it's acknowledging the wholesome activities that we have done in order to generate the positive mind states to be able to see through the ego rather than to increase it. And so in, in, a, in a Buddhist context, it's, you know, and it's interesting to see the different ways in different cultures. So in a, in a Buddha, traditional Buddhist, if they give something... They want everybody to know, and they want everyone to be part of it. So when I was living in the monastery, and the Sri Lankan, or the Thai, or the Laotian, or the Cambodian people would give something, they'd make a big pile right in the middle of the temple, right in the middle of the meditation hall. 
And sometimes they'd take a tray which had symbolic offerings and they'd bring it around to every single person who was there that day so that they could touch it. So somehow they would be involved in the in sharing in the merit of the offering. Okay? And the English people or the European people, they would come in through the back door, they would sneak into the pantry when no one was seeing, so they would put their thing there so that it could be absolutely anonymous and nobody would have a clue who it was who'd given them and it would be completely invisible. Because in an English context, there's a sense that, you know, to have any sense of letting people know that you've given something would be culturally, like, really... Um, proud in the wrong sense of the word you know like you're showing off it's not a good thing so here we are in one monastery and we'd have these two different styles of offerings you know and you know got used to got used to seeing that now you know i have a habit of going on alms round where i take my alms bowl and i take it into manitou springs and i stand there or i walk up and down the street or i stay in different places and, you know, Manitou Springs is a little bit like the Boulder equivalent of Colorado Springs. It's a little bit counterculture and hippie, and it's not quite as uh, fancy and as, and as awkwardly <coughs> mobile as Boulder is, but it definitely has a different energy quality to it than, than the rest of the city. And, you know, I've been going there regularly, and I stand with my alms bowl, and I'm not allowed to ask, and I'm not allowed to to tell people what I'm doing unless they ask me. And it's just been, you know, a variety of amazing experiences of what happens when I do that, you know. So I'm making myself available to receive offerings without any expectation that anything's going to happen. And sometimes it's very touching the way people respond. You know, a woman came up to me and she offered me some, she asked me, it's usually what happens is people think that I'm, I'm asking for money, and they try and put money in my bowl. And I let them know I, I'm not allowed to receive money. And then there's usually this kind of, like, blank look, like, <laughs> <laughs> so what is the deal? So then I can tell them, I'm here, I'm on alms round, and I'm receiving food for the day. And then sometimes they can say, I don't have any food. And sometimes they can say, well, just wait, I'll give you something. You know, so one day a woman had come and then she'd offered some money and I said I couldn't receive it. And she said, oh, that's fine. Just wait and I'll get you something. And, and I came back and she brought groceries, you know. So I'm an unknown person to her. She doesn't know who I am. She doesn't know my practice. She doesn't know my rules. She doesn't know anything. She brought me some groceries. So I received the groceries and I say, well, usually when I receive an offering, I offer a blessing chant. You know, was that all right? And she said, yeah, that's okay. So I said, well, you're not going to understand the language unless you're a Pali scholar and you speak Pali. But basically, you know, what this is about is just the, the, the blessings that come from generosity. So just touch into the goodness in your own heart. Pay attention to that as I'm chanting and let it spread. And so, you know, I've known her, what, a minute? I start chanting and the tears you know, the tears are just pouring, you know, pouring, pouring down. Because of what it is to touch into our heart that is good and generous. We don't do that, you know. 
we think of ourselves as somehow lacking or insufficient or not good enough, and, and to just touch into what it is to give, and to know it, and to feel it, and to allow it. And, you know, and so here she is, she's just giving me two bags of groceries. She leaves, and she says, thank you, sister. And for me, it's like, you know, she has no idea who I am. I've never met her before. She doesn't know what I practice. She's never heard me teach. There's no context other than the goodness of her own heart and the openness of the present moment to be able to receive and interact in that kind of a way. It never ceases to blow me away, you know, what happens when one is open in that way just to receive. So another day, I was similar area. I was in Manitou Springs, and a man came up to me, and he said, what are you selling? <laughs> and I was flummoxed. I was speechless. I didn't have a response. You know? So it's a curious thing, you know. If you were in my shoes, if you were wearing my sandals, if you had robes on and an alms bowl, and somebody came up to you and said, what are you selling, what would you say? I did, yeah, yeah, I did, and some of the responses were fabulous. They're fabulous. They're just fabulous. Yeah, they're great. So, what was your response? Zero. I stayed absolutely silent. I didn't say anything. Yeah. But you can have a lot of fun with that one. <laughs> yeah, you can have a lot of fun. With So generosity gives us a context, and then the next thing that is often described or explained or talked about is morality. Now, when you're in a traditional context, there's often a Buddha with flowers, candles, and incense. Yeah, and the candles are representing uh, re representing the the sweetness that comes from concentration. The candles are representing the light that comes from wisdom. And the flowers are representing the beauty that comes from morality. Now, I don't know what's the current kind of take on morality these days. But I know when I was going to college, morality was sort of like a dried up prune. You know, it was like, there was like a really kind of, a, a not a lovely association. Morality was like, a bad thing. It was not what anybody was interested in in acquiring or living up to, or it was a bad thing. It dried up prune would be generous, you know, in terms of the way people thought about morality, you know. And yet when you look at the symbolic imagery of the shrine, it's the flower that represents morality, which is totally the opposite of a dried up prune. A, a flower is absolutely exquisitely beautiful in its own nature. It's not trying to become anything. It's not pushing anything away. It's not rigid. It is absolutely exquisite in its own nature. And that is the symbolic representation of what morality is about. It's not rigid. It's not dry. It's not miserable. Okay? It's exquisitely beautiful, resting in its own nature. 
So when we think about that, when we look at the precepts, the precept not to kill, or the precept not to steal, or the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct, the precept to refrain from speaking in ways which are unskillful, untruthful, harmful, harsh, divisive, or drugs and alcohol. We can see that all of these really formulate around the first precept, which is to refrain from harming. Okay? So when we take this precept to refrain from killing and, and, and turn it into an internal reflection to refrain from harming, okay, it means that we also have to see that we have to start harming, stop harming ourselves in the way that we think, in the judgments that we have, in the way that we judge, criticize, slander, belittle, the way that we undervalue ourselves, the way that we are never good enough, the way that, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on. We have to stop doing that to ourselves. And when we stop doing that to ourselves, we can also stop doing that to other people. And the other precepts, refraining from stealing, from sexual misconduct, from speech, in some ways are offshoots of non-harming. Because when we take something that's not given... There's an awful lot of confusion and distrust and dishonesty, you know, that happens. When we engage in sexual misconduct, I mean, I don't need to say much about how devastating that can be. You know, couples breaking up, people who are not uh, consenting, people who are underage and don't have the capacity to really navigate that territory with any skillfulness. Or even just things like, you know, in a contemporary age, in the Buddha's age, they didn't talk about birth control, they didn't talk about safe sex, because they didn't have things like that to talk about. But in our contemporary world, it's relevant, and it's very much related to, you know, how do we engage in this area in a way where there's no harm, you know? If people are in heterosexual relationship of childbearing age, and they're not using contraception, you know, what happens? Well, the, the, the worst thing, or the, the, the I mean, at the, at the easiest is an unbelievable amount of anxiety waiting to find out if somebody's pregnant, you know. And then if a child is conceived and not wanted, then there's a whole huge thing that has to happen around changing one's choice or deciding what to do, you know, big, huge things. And then in terms of safe sex, you know, there's all kinds of stuff to deal with now that didn't happen to happen in the time of the Buddha in terms of, you know, what actually causes illness or injury or things like that. You never used to think about stuff like that, but it's relevant. You know, what that means in terms of protecting yourself or your partner from any possible disease or illness that might be long-lasting or uh, deteriorating that quality of life. You know, so these things are important. And then looking at speech and looking at the qualities of, you know, whether what we're saying is truthful or honest and what we're saying is actually conducive towards harmony or to divisive and whether we're speaking at the right time or the wrong time and whether what we're saying is actually with the intention to help another person or whether what we're wanting to do is to somehow push them down or to jab them or cut them or undercut them. You know, 
And for in terms of the difficulties in keeping the precepts, I think many of us look at the fourth precept as one of the more challenging ones to navigate because the this our social pressures is, is very strong around you know, we can feel a certain amount of tribal communion when we get together with somebody else and trash a third person, you know. And to just know that it's it's not okay to do that, you know, and to and to feel the, the effect of not doing that and to feel the effect of not engaging in that in that sense of, you know, the kind of joy of agreeing in somebody else's weaknesses and having a go at them as a result of that. And then the fifth precept has to do with the precept of refraining from intoxicants and drugs and things which cause the cloudiness in the mind. And, you know, for me, drugs was never something that was a real issue for me. And part of the reason why was because I was so unbelievably sensitive that I used to get stoned just walking into a room with people who were smoking a joint, you know. I remember it took me decades to be able to get near spaces where people were using substances and I wouldn't get an immediate contact high, you know. But I have spoken to lots of friends who've had addiction as part of their life story and recovery as part of their life story. And, you know, this is a a phenomenal hell realm to navigate in terms of you know, lack of satisfaction and constant craving and an inability to track what's going on in their own minds and bodies and and respond in ways that they felt happy with. And so we can see that, you know, the way alcohol and drugs and work is, is that it messes up our cognitive functions so that we can't see and think clearly, which makes it difficult to keep all of the other precepts. I was talking to a woman on a retreat. She was a mom. And her daughter had gotten drunk and had a one-night stand and ended up getting pregnant. And so here she was, a grandma, with a daughter who didn't want to have the baby. And all of this was because of not having the clarity to make the right choices in a situation where she had used too much alcohol. And, you know, the suffering was tangible. It was very noticeable. Now, I've never done this before. I've never given a Dharma talk with a computer, but I'm doing it tonight because um, Chittanan Han had a very beautiful way of um, describing the precepts, and I didn't have time to print it out beforehand, so I just have time to read it for you. Chittanan Han is a Vietnamese Zen master who has done a lot of work in thinking about the ways in which we need to bring the Dhamma into our modern context. And he's very poetic, he's very tender, he's very thoughtful, and he absolutely understands the value of community. So he's taken the basic precepts and reworded them, and I just want to read them for you. And so... um, So aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I'm determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world in my thinking and in my way of life. 
aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression. I vow to cultivate loving kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time and energy and material resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I vow to cultivate responsibility and learn ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I determine not to engage in sexual relationships without love and long-term commitment to preserve the happiness of myself and others. I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others, and I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect, prevent couples and families from being broken by sexual misconduct. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words that can cause division or discord, or that can cause the family or the community to break. I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflict, however small. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I vow to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I vow to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence fear, anger, and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. 
So we start with generosity and we close with morality and we can see that in cultivating morality and <coughs> practicing morality, it's a very high form of generosity, of giving safety in the world, of creating harmlessness for oneself and for others in the world, for creating a context where fear doesn't arise, where trust can arise. And so these things are intermeshed. So I'd like to stop here and invite everybody to circle up. We can have a few minutes break and come back. We can circle up, we can share names and have a conversation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.